and um, thankful to be getting back to John with you this morning. John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. John 8, 1 through 11. It says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard of it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So we come to a passage of Scripture this morning that's familiar. The story is a familiar story. And uh, uh, depending on um, what translation, what version you're reading, uh, there may be a note that says that in um, what they call the best, which is typically what they're referring to the oldest, manuscripts, this is not here in the Gospel of John in chapter 8. There's only a couple of times in Scripture where uh, where that sort of thing happens, and it's whenever you're comparing manuscripts um, to each other. And so there are some early manuscripts where this is not in the Gospel of John, but scholars agree uh, that this is a... Um, this story is an authentic story that belongs in the Gospels. In some manuscripts, it's found in the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's also found in uh, other places as far as John is concerned. Um, but John chapter 8, the context fits well, and uh, I'm content for us to be here in John chapter 8 and to have it placed here as far as as we move through this chapter, you'll see that it fits right in line with the rest of what's going to be here. So we could, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about textual criticism and all that sort of thing. And that's a good lunch topic if you want to talk about it. But uh, I just want to bring that up in case you have a different version that you're reading and there's a little footnote. There are some times where uh, there's questions about a passage, like at the end of Mark, uh, where some will take it out. Most translations have just put the little footnote to let you know that this may be in different places and different manuscripts. So John chapter 8, um, we're going to look at this, and again, it's a familiar passage to us, the woman who's caught in adultery, 
The scribes, the Pharisees, bring her to Jesus. They tell him what the law says. And then they say, now what are you going to do? What do you say? And Jesus gives his answer. It's helpful for us. And this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm more than comfortable with John chapter 8, 1 through 11 coming at the heels of John chapter 7. It's helpful for us to get the context here. You'll remember, it's been several weeks, but you'll remember that in John chapter 7, Jesus goes to the uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a week-long feast the Jews had. It was, uh, by most accounts, the biggest feast, the most well-attended feast that they had. And it was the time where they would remember God's faithfulness to them as they uh, wandered in the wilderness, as they... Uh, set up these temporary tabernacles, temporary tents, booths for themselves in the week to remember God's provisions. And one of the main provisions that they would remember would be the uh, the water from the rock. There was a water ceremony every day, and uh, it would lead up to that last day. And, and we talked about that as Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast in John 37 and says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And um, what he was obviously alluding to, Jesus is saying that, uh, that he was that true water of salvation. He was the well of salvation that was to be... Um, that waters were to be drawn from. And then you'll remember, and this is really what I want to remind you of, the responses to him varied. Okay, it, it, Whenever you get to the end of John chapter uh, 7, around verse 40, there's various responses. So in verse 40 it says that after that, many people concluded that he was the prophet of a truth, this is the prophet. Probably referring to Deuteronomy 18.15, the prophet that Moses said he would raise up among the brethren and they would hearken or hear, listen to him. Others believe that he was the Christ or the anointed Messiah, verse 41. Some question that because they thought he came out of Galilee, but still... There was something impactful about what Jesus said, how he said it, something impactful about the way he taught. But the Pharisees were indignant about all of this. They already didn't like Jesus. They already didn't like the fact that he was not interested in um, fitting into what they had um, created as far as the law, their additions to the law, and their self-righteousness. Well, the Pharisees, starting in verse 45, began to rebuke the officers that were sent to, uh, to take Jesus. After that, Nicodemus speaks up and says, well, why don't we just wait and see what happens? Does, our, does the law not say that we should, should uh, um, uh, not judge a man before we hear him and we know what he does? 
And the Pharisees would have none of that. But chapter 7 ends this way in verse 53. After the discussion was over, every man went into his own house. And then chapter 8, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so chapter 8 is still in this last day of the feast. And at the end of that day, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. This would have been about a 30-minute walk from the temple. And then in verse 2 it says, early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them. So we're, we're really we're just trying to set the context, set the scene. John chapter 7 is this last day of the, of the feast, officially the last day of the Feast of Booths. It would have been an all-day celebration or an all-day festival to cap the week. People go back to wherever they're staying. And then the next morning, Jesus goes back to the temple. And before some of these people head home, they go back to hear him teach one more time. And this is where this story takes place. It says that in verse 2, again, early in the morning he came again to the temple and and all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them. He taught them. Well, you can imagine that this whole scene just infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's Jesus back in the temple. The phrase all people is just a phrase that would indicate a large amount of people. The people who were there gravitated toward Jesus and he sat down and began to teach, began to teach them the way that he taught in Matthew chapter 5 as one with authority. It was obvious to the people that something was different about the way this man taught. That there was something to what he was saying. And so we have, as this chapter starts out, we have uh, the teacher. The teacher. Why was it that the religious world the Jews in this religious world, why was it that they hated Jesus? Well, it was because of what he taught. It was because of what he taught. They were the rulers of Israel. They, as it were, held the keys of the kingdom. They were the experts of the law. If anybody had a question, they were the authorities to go to. And then Jesus comes along. And what he says and the way he teaches flies in the face and begins to really loosen the grip that the religious leaders have on the people. Because he's exposing that the scribes and the Pharisees, we've said this before, but it's just true. The scribes and the Pharisees were using the law of God to glorify themselves. 
Jesus comes along and it's his meat to do the will of the Father. And it's his will that the Father would receive all glory through his life, through his teaching, through his death. So the scene is a scene that the Pharisees and the scribes probably couldn't hate anymore. Jesus teaching. Then we come to verses three through six, where we have the trap. Okay, verses one and two, Jesus is the teacher. Three through six, we have a trap. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So Jesus is in the temple. A crowd has gathered around him as he's teaching. And the scribes and the Pharisees drag this woman in and they set her in the middle of the crowd and they say, we've caught this woman in the very act of adultery. This is what the law says. What do you say? Now, we know based on the text, based on verse 6, that this whole episode is about the scribes and the Pharisees trying to trap and accuse and even discredit Jesus. Now, the word there is to tempt Jesus, but the temptation, what they're throwing out is, we've seen it before, it's this attempt to trip him up, to entrap him, to be able to accuse him, maybe to get rid of him, but at least to discredit him as it relates to the people. Some even suspect, and we don't know this, but just based on the nature of the way this plays out, some even suspect that this whole scenario had been orchestrated by the scribes and the Pharisees, that this woman might have even been set up so that they could bring her in and bring about this accusation. We don't know that, but the way it's worded, the way it's laid out, some suspect that's maybe the case. So what's the trap? What's the setup? Well, number one, in this whole section, three to six, first we have the woman. We have the woman. This is a lady who was uh, caught in adultery. There, there's absolutely no question as to what was happening here. There's absolutely no question as to whether or not this woman is innocent or guilty. They come and they say, we found her in the very act. We know there's multiple witnesses to this accusation. She's taken from where she was found and she's dragged to the temple. She's placed in the middle of the crowd. She's accused and she's condemned. And so you can imagine the guilt, the fear, the humiliation, the shame that probably marked this woman's really disheveled appearance. I mean, there's 
people who have tried to recreate the scene. Um, Rembrandt has a painting of the woman caught in adultery. And if you know me very well, you know I'm not a guy that peruses Rembrandt. Okay, that's, uh, that's not really my thing, but there's a painting to depict this. And if you look at it, the, the woman is, there's a light almost around her. She, she looks as if she's this gentle, elegant woman. This lady's probably trying to get her clothes on as she's being drugged from her adultery to the temple. And she looks anything but elegant. She looks anything but kept. She looks like a pitiful mess. Probably one that you would, probably wouldn't say it out loud, but despise. Turn your nose up at. It's easy for us, and we'll talk about this in the application, it's easy for us because we know the, the story. It's easy for us maybe to look at the woman with some, with some sympathy and, and to think, you know, this, this poor lady. And, and there's some incongruencies in the way that the law is kept here that would make us think that. But, but the reality is, if you were to see her, without knowing the full story, more than likely that would not be that would not be your response. So you have the woman. Secondly, you have the law. Okay, so the woman, there's no doubt she's guilty. The law is very clear on what happens in a scenario like this. As the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus, they're not making anything up as far as what is supposed to happen here under the Mosaic law. Look in Exodus 20. Exodus 20. You know this. But just as a reminder... As God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, these will be uh, moved into and, and, and um, expounded upon in books like Leviticus, but just on the outset, Levit- I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The law is clear here. There's no way to spin that to make it mean or say anything else. You shall not commit adultery. Clear violation of the law. Leviticus chapter 20 would speak to the sentencing of those who commit adultery. What's the penalty? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 
says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22 would speak to this as well. Deuteronomy chapter 22. And this is starting in verse... Um, I'm going to start in verse 21. This is talking about a, uh, a lady who was betrothed. She was supposed to be a virgin. It turns out she's not. Verse 21 says, Then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city. And you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city. And the man, because he had humbled his neighbor's wife. So thou shalt put away evil from among you. Now, there's a sense in which we read these laws and there is a harshness about them, or at least it seems to be a harshness about them. Uh, why? 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 Why is it that if someone is found in the act of this particular sin, that they're to be killed? Well, the answer to that question. I've been working through a book with some junior high kids in our co-op and one of the things that is laid out I think that's so helpful as we think about understanding the Old Testament one of the questions is asked why is God so angry or why does he seem so angry in the Old Testament why does it seem that God is so harsh in the Old Testament and thematically speaking the answer is it's because of his passion for holiness you cannot love holiness and tolerate unrighteousness at the same time. You can't do that. And so what we have here in the law doesn't expose some sort of a uh, problem in God's character. It exposes a complete consistency in the fact that God is a God of righteousness who loves holiness and requires that. But as we look at passages like Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.21-24, what that really exposes in our own hearts if we come to those thinking, my goodness, how harsh, is just how unrighteous 
our whole moral compass is. What we're going to find out in this story, we, we, at the end, we're, we're going to look and try to see, you know, where do you find yourself in this story? Well, the truth is you are the adulterer. The truth is you're also the Pharisees and scribes who bring the adulterer and, and bring charges. You find yourself in this story in plenty of different places. Sometimes we'd like to think that, well, where I find myself is Jesus. I'm the compassionate one. Eh. Nope. <laughs> That's not where you find yourself. Now, as we said in verse 6, uh, or the text says in verse 6, this was a trap. This was a setup. And the setup was not for the woman. The setup was for Jesus. So the question is, what's the trap? What's the setup? Well, there's two possibilities that the scribes and the Pharisees see. Number one, Jesus can disagree with the Mosaic law. He can disagree or he can criticize the Mosaic law. And if he were to do that, he would be instantly discredited as someone who denied the authority of the Mosaic law. We know from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is very clear about the fact he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Okay, trap number one, just disagree with the penalty. Trap number two, Jesus could agree. Well, what would be the problem with that? That seems safe enough. But the trap is, if Jesus agreed with them that this was to be carried out the way that the Mosaic Law said it was to be carried out, then they could accuse Him of trying to exercise power that only belonged to the Romans, which would be a punishable offense. You remember why the Jews took Jesus to Pilate to be killed instead of killing Jesus themselves? Well, in John chapter 18, verse 31, they're clear about that. We don't have the power to do this. We're under Roman rule. The Jewish nation was functioning as a nation, but only as much as the Romans would allow them to do so. There were parts of the Mosaic law that they could adhere to as far as give assent to, but they could not carry out. And the death penalty was one of those parts. And so that's the trap. They bring this lady to Jesus. There is no question about whether or not she's guilty. They lay out the, the, the law and the penalty for sin, for this particular sin. And they've got him either way. Either he disagrees with the law and he's discredited. Or he agrees with them and we can go accuse him to the Romans. And we get rid of him that way. So we have the teacher 
one who comes into the temple, he teaches and all people come unto him. We have the trap. The scribes and the Pharisees bring this lady and they can only see one of two outcomes as the result. And then verses 7 through 11, we have the truth. Here's the truth, the truth of the whole thing. John chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Well, let me let me back up. As, as they come in verse 6 and they're tempting him so that they might be able to accuse him, it says that Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he didn't hear them. And then when you get into verse 7, it says um, they kept asking, kept asking, kept asking. But Jesus keeps writing. You know, a lot of... A lot's been said about this stooping down and writing. What was he doing? What was he writing? There's a lot of, a lot of guesses about that. Um, I guess there's not a, a whole lot wrong with speculation as long as we keep it in speculation, but anytime we're saying more about the Bible than the Bible's saying about the Bible, we're probably headed in a wrong direction. What's he saying and what's he writing? It's not the point. Okay, it's not the point. If it were, we would have more information. So sometimes we can get distracted, let our imaginations run wild, feel smart, when all we're doing is making up a bunch of stuff. Okay. What did he write? That's not the point. What is the point? Well, let's keep going. When they continued, verse 7, asking him, he lifted up himself and he said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man. Lord, and Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. The truth. Now, rather than going sequentially with the text, I want to take this in a more of a categorical approach. The truth that Jesus reveals and the way that he responds here. All right, truth number one. Self-righteousness is blinding. Self-righteousness is blinding. What do we mean by that? Well, first off, the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman, they throw her in the middle of the crowd, and it's not even on their radar that they might be condemning her for something that they themselves are going to be condemned of as well. Which is what? 
a violation of the law. I don't think necessarily that this means everybody walked out because everybody was convicted about the fact that they at one time had committed adultery too. What it means is that they, the reason that they were so confident, the reason that they were so harsh and hard, the reason that they were so brazen about slinging this woman into the middle of the mix is because they were blind to their own sin. They were blind to the fact that they had violated the law as well. And ironically enough, they were blind to the fact, maybe, I don't know that this was so blind, but at least it gave them, uh, they had the, the, the boldness to do something like this. They come and they obviously distort the law. Self-righteousness, just like the idolatry we were talking about this morning and, and, and the way Sister Rachel described it as well, this stuff is just self-serving. I will use the law to batter you, but I will give myself a free pass every time. Leviticus 20.10, we read earlier, it says, if you catch a man in the act of adultery, then you are to take him and the adulteress and you are to kill him and the adulteress. Well, the question is, and anybody you read on this is going to bring this up. Where is the man who was caught with her in the act of adultery? I mean, we have the scribes and the Pharisees here who are so concerned about a standard of righteousness, so concerned that the law of God not be violated. And they're so concerned about making their case that they condemn themselves with their case. We caught her in the act. Well, where's the guy? There's a blinding effect of self-righteousness. You see, the fact is, the, the scribes and the Pharisees here are, are placing themselves above the law in the sense of, we will execute this thing the way we want to do it. We're not worried about God's glory. We're worried about our own glory. What's it going to hurt? We get one whore off the street and we get rid of Jesus. Who cares about what happens to this guy? That's the kind of stuff that goes on, you know, behind closed doors and rooms with no electronics as far as politicians are concerned. Well, that's what's happening right here. So it's a distortion of the law. Secondly, self-righteousness will produce a hardness toward people. Hardness, harshness. Toward people. Was the lady guilty? Yes, she was guilty. But to drag her out and to sling her in the middle of the crowd just to prove a point and say, Jesus, what are you going to do with her? There's a real hardness there. And then, as we've already alluded to, self-righteousness is very good at minimizing personal sin. Minimizing personal sin. 
Verse 9 lets us know that under the law, they were just as guilty as she was. When Jesus says, whoever is without sin cast the first stone, the text is clear as to what happens. Their, their conscience is pricked. They're convicted by their own conscience. And it says they went out one by one. So here's the truth, at least truth number one from this text. Self-righteousness will blind you. You say, well, if it's blinding, then how do you catch it? Right. So it's one thing if I say self-righteousness will make you blind and then someone says, yeah, 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 I see my blindness all the time. Eh, that's not the way that works, is it? You can't see what you're blind to. So how is that exposed? Well, the theme of John chapter 8 as we get into the text is going to be that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light that shines into the darkness. The same thing that exposed the Pharisees and the scribes' darkness that uh, brought conviction because of their conscience is the same thing that opens us up, opens our eyes to the blindness that we carry around. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to be going along doing the same thing you've been doing, either not acknowledging, not recognizing, or not admitting to the fact that it is a grievous sin against God, and then all of a sudden, it changes. Maybe it was a conversation. Maybe it was because you were reading Scripture. Maybe it was because of who knows what. And all of a sudden, your conscience is stricken by something you've been doing for a long, long time, but now you're seeing it in a way that you had never seen it before. Self-righteousness will blind you. Secondly, and the rest of this we've alluded to, but it's important. Here's the truth. The accusation of sin brought against this woman. Here's the truth. The accusation of sin brought against this woman is true. It's true. The woman is not innocent. And Jesus confirms that in verse 11 whenever He says, go and sin no more. There's no question as to what was happening here or what she was involved in. We said earlier, she's, she's not, the picture of her is not a victim. Who's the villain in the story? She is. The scribes and Pharisees are as well. But if we're not careful, we can let a bleeding heart make us think this poor woman was the victim. That's not the case. She's the villain. She looks a whole lot less like the elegant woman I described earlier whole lot more like the prostitutes you see walking down Lamar Avenue in Memphis. 
the accusation of sin is true. It's real. We don't paint a gospel picture by trying to minimize her sin. Third, the guilt of her sin was real. The guilt that this woman carries is a result of her rebellion against God. She is guilty under the law. And she's guilty before her accusers. So the motive behind their accusation was wrong. But the accusation and the guilt that they were pointing out was not. Number four, we're thinking about the truth. The penalty of sin is real. Again, we saw it's there. Leviticus 20. Uh, Deuteronomy 22. This is real. It's, they're, they're not fabricating this. The guilt of sin will ultimately result in death. Well, that's whether you're talking about adultery or anything else. And so, if we come at this text, again, with the idea that, well, the scribes and the Pharisees are the bad guys, the lady caught in adultery is the good guy, and I'm a lot more like Jesus than the rest of them. We're missing it. We have two villains and a savior in this story. So the penalty of sin is real. And then here's, I think, the point. And the pardon for sin is only found in Jesus Christ. She couldn't claim herself to be innocent because she wasn't. She couldn't claim that there was a distortion of the law as it related to her penalty because there wasn't. I imagine that while she was being drugged to the temple, she recognized, I'm taking my last breaths right now. But then somehow she found pardon. She found pardon in this teacher, in this Jesus of Nazareth. And so now we ask the question, and hopefully align it correctly, where do you find yourself in this account of John's Gospel? Where are you in this story? Well, number one, we're guilty. We locate ourselves there fairly easily. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You tie this in to what we were reading this morning in Psalm 115. You know, the song of your heart outside of a work of grace, has always been 
Not unto you, O Lord, not unto you, but unto my name be the glory. It's always been that. What does that look like, practically speaking? It looks like this. God, I don't care what you say. I don't even care what you like. I'm living for me. And I will do what I want to do. And I will function as if I am my own God. Well, brothers and sisters, in a world where God has a passion for holiness, that just won't work. The guilt is real. Whether it's through adultery, physical or spiritual. It's worth noting, some people walk away from John chapter 8 And one of their applications is the fact that Jesus was a little softer on adultery than others. You know, the hardest person on adultery in the New Testament is Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. You've heard not to commit adultery, but if you've even looked upon a woman to lust on her in your heart, you've already committed it. Guilt. Secondly, we find ourselves in this account. You're accusers. You're guilty. And you have plenty of accusers. Number one, the law. The law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know what that means? It means you can try to stack your life up. It means you can try to stack your decisions up. You can try to stack your guilt up. Beside the law, and the law will accuse you every time. That's its function. To expose, to bring you to the knowledge of your guilt and sin. Secondly, your conscience. Anybody know anything about a tender conscience? A nagging conscience? It says whenever Jesus asked the question that the people were convicted in their conscience. In 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Now the reason I go here, at least at this point, we're going to revisit this text. It's just this reality that our hearts or our consciences will condemn us. We wrestle with that. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. There's these accusations that are coming out. And the question is, Well, 
Why do we ignore those? Does Satan just make up a bunch of stuff? Well, he is the father of lies, but whenever it comes to the material that he needs on you in order to condemn you before God, he doesn't have to make up anything. You've given him all he's ever needed. Now, what he'll do is he'll distort the work of Christ on your behalf. But, you know, Satan's not in the business of making up things to accuse you before God because he doesn't need to. You've given him everything he's ever needed. His lies primarily are going to deal with minimizing the work of Christ on your behalf as you struggle as a believer or blinding you to the work of Christ. And then we have others. We have others. The lady's thrown into the middle of the, of the crowd and she's done that, or she's thrown in by her accusers. We have others. So now here's the question. How do you deal with these accusations? How do you deal with these accusations? And the truth is, whether you recognize it or not, these are things that you work through internally on a regular basis. So what do you do whenever the law accuses you? Well, some people say, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to get more disciplined. I'm going to put things into place to where I can do better. I'm tired of the law condemning me, so I'm going to work harder. What about your conscience, your heart? What happens when your heart condemns you, accuses you? How do you deal with that? Well, this is what the stuff of addictions are made out of. Help me find a way to be distracted. Help me find a way to forget. Help me find a way to quarterize, sanitize, distract what's going on internally. This is also what a life that's characterized by defensiveness looks like. You find people who are overly sensitive about their sin being pointed out and you found someone who has no idea what to do when their conscience accuses them. And so they fall apart. Satan Others? What do we do with these accusations? Well, as far as locating ourselves in this gospel, we said number one, it's our guilt. Number two, our accusers. Number three, it's your pardon. That's what we're asking. Where do you find your pardon? You know this already, but it's easy to do. Sometimes we do this comparatively. Yeah, I sin, but look at everybody else. I'm better than. And the truth is, we could go around the room and, you know, if we were giving testimonies right now and you really wanted to make it 
juicy. You could talk about how you were the biggest sinner in the room, but nobody in this room really believes that about yourself. At least not for long. You can always find somebody who's worse than you. You know what that's called? Self-righteousness. I do things that make me better than fill in the blank. And the tricky part about it is the things that you're resting in really depend on who it is you're trying to elevate yourself above. But this is where the lady finds her pardon. She's alone with Jesus and he asks, does no man condemn you? No man, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the question is, how does this pardon work? We said earlier that Jesus could come to this lady and um, the Pharisees and scribes could ask, you know, what are you going to do? We know she's guilty. This is what the law says. And we could say the, the, the trap number one is for him to disagree with the law. And it looks like that's what he did. The law condemns this woman. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So how does this pardon work? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us, particularly for time's sake, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is she guilty? Yes. Will the guilt have to be paid for? Yes. Or the sin have to be paid for? The answer is yes. So how is pardon possible? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 just says in a different way what Isaiah 53 says. He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God. That is, the adulterous woman doesn't get off scot-free in the sense of her sin just disappears. Every one of the stones that were reserved for her and then some came down on Christ as He hung on the cross. Every ounce of penalty that went along with this woman's adultery and sinfulness was poured out on Christ to the extent that Isaiah 53 would say in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him or it pleased the Lord to crush him as he made his soul an offering for sin. Now, here's why this is important, and I'll wrap this up. Brothers and sisters, if we think in our own life or in the lives of those that we love and want to help, if we think that the best way for us 
to deal with our own sin or help others deal with theirs is to turn villains into victims and pretend like this wasn't that big of a deal. And grace means that God doesn't make a big deal out of this stuff. We're way out in left field. Pardon doesn't come as we minimize sin. As a matter of fact, you can't minimize sin without minimizing Jesus Christ and the cross at the same time. But Romans 3.20 really lays out where we find our pardon. At least how we enter into the blessing of this pardon. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. It's being said here. Where, where do we find pardon? Where do we find an answer to the law, to our conscience, to the accuser of the brethren, to our accusers in general? Where do we find that? Well, it says we look to Christ in faith. That's our answer. Faith about what? That I don't stand before God in my own righteousness. But I stand before God in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the sin that I've committed and the sin that that nags my conscience, that's condemned by the law, that is uh, the, the penalty that is is brought up again and again by the accuser of the brethren, that sin has been laid upon Jesus Christ and has been paid for. So that Romans 8.1 is now my reality. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who walk after the Spirit. Go and sin no more. Romans 8.33-34 would ask the question, who will bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is... Christ who justifies. You know, there's nothing that can really unearth our self-righteousness like the way we deal with our own personal sin. The way we try to salve our own conscience. And the the freedom that we have from the truths of what we're looking at in a passage like this as far as our pardon, the lack of condemnation, it always goes back to what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. The answer for your sin is never for you to look inward. It's always for you to look outward. The answer for our guilt and for our shame The answer for all the accusations is never for us to try to polish ourselves up and make ourselves anything besides what we are. But it's to look to Christ. 
Is the guilt real? Yes. Is the shame real? Yes. Is the embarrassment real? Sure. What's the answer? The answer is that if you are in Christ, you are now a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Your pardon is through the work of Christ and the blessing of being able to lay hold of that pardon is through faith. It's believing God over believing your own conscience, over believing the accusations that come at us. Now look, 1 John 3, we'll end here. Now again, these kind, this kind of reality frees us up from defensiveness, from being overly sensitive. If our pardon is found in Christ and in Christ alone, then every single time we acknowledge real guilt, then it's an opportunity to look to Him in faith and to glorify the work that He's done on behalf of His people. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. This confidence is what we're talking about as we look at the faithfulness of Christ by faith. And we trust in the work that He's done on our behalf. Because the truth is, at our dead level best, we stand before God either in blind self-righteousness or in obvious guilt and shame due to our sin. And the only answer to either one of those is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so may God bless us to be honest about our sin and to be quick to turn to Christ in faith as we accuse ourselves and as we are accused by the accuser. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we again, we thank You for the day. We thank You that we can gather together, that we can worship Your name. I thank You, Lord, that this passage in John came along at the same time as Psalm 115. And it really, uh, really drives the point home, Lord, not unto us, but unto Your name be glory. Father, I pray we would not seek self-glory by trying to clean ourselves up in the law. That we would not seek self-glory by being defensive, by being self-protective, or just by being in complete denial about sin. But Lord, we would seek to glorify You, Your name, Your covenant love, Your covenant faithfulness, and the work that You've done on our behalf through Christ by acknowledging that we're the ones who are in need of pardon. And that pardon is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, we trust in that this morning. We believe and pray that You would help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, Amen.